Ah, Uga Chaka, Uga Chaka, Uga Chaka. Hello to all you unconventional conventionists. Welcome to Rocky Talkie. I'm Jacob. I'm John. And I'm Aaron. Alright guys, how have your weeks been? I'm tired and want to die, Jacob. How are you? Oh man, I mean I feel the same way, but also I'm happy. I just gave blood yesterday, and other than that, everything's everything's pretty chill. Uh, I stole some cheese and some sausage and some artichoke hearts from Wegmans. That was pretty fun. Um, yeah, Aaron. Wow, we got we got all the dicks up in here today. I all hate right. to see it. I do. I really, I truly hate to see it. Yeah. My dick what is I don't up. hate yeah. to see is Jacob stealing. God damn it, you guys. It's not cool to steal. Seize the means of production. It's so cool to steal from, like, regular... It is super cool to steal. From, like, regular people don't steal, but from fucking Wegmans? They fucking yeah, steal Weg- everything. Yeah, I agree. Woo! Rocky Talkie does not endorse the theft of property from commercial or other ventures. Although, fuck the companies. <laughs> The views expressed by the hosts of Rocky Talkie Podcast are merely opinion and in no way reflect the values of the show or network as a whole. Rocky Talkie Podcast wholeheartedly endorses and encourages listeners to fight the corporate overlords, be gay, and do crimes. Yes, we do. We endorse the <laughs> shit out of that. <laughs> oh. Aaron, what did you do this week? Uh, aside from obviously not steal, like the loser you are. Yeah, well, you know, I wasn't cool enough to do that. Uh, no, had a bunch of fun. Just the other day, uh, Meg and I went to check out a new venue uh, that we're taking a look at. We went and got to see uh, this really cool old-timey burlesque show there with a fantastic jazz band. Uh, there was some live music, some vintage burlesque, uh, and it was really, really fucking fun. And uh, maybe maybe New York's going to get to perform in that location. It, it's going to be... It's going to be really Ooh. exciting. Yeah. The entire keep... city of New York. <laughs> All of New York. Yep. But yeah, that was super fun. So what about you, John? What the fuck were you up to this week? Aside from dying at work and uh, dying in real life and dying virtually, I did get to see one of my best friends get married this weekend. Oh. Yeah, that was super fun. So uh, my friend Emily, who is on the NYC RHPS cast, recently was wedded yay Woo-hoo! she got married to her fiance of like 69 million years this past weekend uh super small wedding it literally happened like in an airbnb there was only like i don't know it was like less than a dozen people who were actively like there because obviously it was a small airbnb or b we couldn't fit everybody uh, but it was it was really good. Uh, I've known Emily for a very long time. She was actually a student of mine when I started working in New York City in the field that I'm in. So it's been really cool to watch her finally marry the uh, the person of their dreams and the same person that they have been dating since I knew them back in 2014. Congratulations, Em. It was a great wedding. I had a great time and I'm still very tired from it. Hoorah! Oh, congratulations, Em. That's congratulations. awesome. Congratulations. With that, let's get into today's show. Watching stars of middling fame dance with professionals has long been a pastime available on broadcast television. This week, those among us that were watching Dancing on Ice got a similar and Rocky-themed treat when famed English drummer Bez, 
or Mark Berry, as his parents call him, skated to Meatloaf's Bad Outta Hell in a truly glorious tribute to the deceased rocker and his next-level theatrics. Bez is an English rocker known as a member of the band's Happy Mondays and Black Grape. Particularly, he is known as the mascot for Happy Mondays as well as for dancing in bizarre styles with his maracas. Most interestingly, and what really makes Bez a rocky man, is one of his early experiences in rock and roll that he writes about in his autobiography, Freaky Dancing. In the opening chapter, which I assume is the only chapter Jacob read, Bez details an incident during a Happy Mondays gig at Manchester's Hacienda nightclub in 1986. In the middle of the set, he fell off the stage and cut his forehead. In the book, he writes, The doc tells me to take it easy and put my feet up. I thought, I'm not fucking having that. I got some of Moose's acid, that's their lead guitarist, dripped it in the cut and ran back out with me shakers. Fucking Raz. Fucking Raz indeed, Bez. Rocky Talkie would like to let all of our listeners know that we do not promote the use of acid for treating medical wounds. The views expressed by the hosts of Rocky Talkie Podcast are merely opinion and in no way reflect the values of the show or network as a whole. Rocky Talkie Podcast does, however, concur with the prior statement and does not condone the use of acid for treatment of medical wounds, only as a cure for being bored on a Tuesday. Okay, well, maybe you don't. Yeah, sometimes desperate times, desperate measures, okay? (laughs) Oh... Dancing on Ice, meanwhile, is a British competition show featuring celebrities and their professional partners figure skating in front of a panel of judges who then vote to send someone home. Originally produced from 2006 to 2011, it was picked back up in 2017 and has been presenting on ITV, that's a British television network, regularly since 2018. This year, aside from drummer Bez, there is a Love Island contestant, a rugby player, Paralympic athlete, an Olympic BMX racer, and many other mid-level stars performing intricate ice skating performances each week. It is a wonder why none of us were invited to do this. (laughs) Right? God, we're on a podcast. Bez actually made record history for the competition show when his tribute performance for Meatloaf performed to the song Bad Out of Hell ended up being the most expensive routine for the show ever. And this performance was reminiscent of everything Meatloaf. It was loaded out to the tits with motorcycles, fire, and giant bat wings, all mixed up somehow with figure skating. Bez started riding onto the ice in a motorcycle, and as he and his partner performed, others skated around the rink with flamethrowers. They were shooting fire into the air, and various pyrotechnic displays went off. It was highlighting particular tricks that Bez and his partner attempted. And at the end of it all, a swing with a pair of giant bat wings descended onto Bez. Bez got on and exited the rink like a bat out of hell. For the routine, everyone was dressed very uh, meatloaf style in leathery black colors. And Bez himself was in a leather jacket without sleeves and a motorcycle helmet. It seems like he really got into the role. Bet it didn't say baby on the back of it, though. Right? I didn't see no leopard print. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, England is a really fucky country, and they didn't get the memo that Meat is back in, because Bez got a lot of snide internet remarks for his performance. Yeah, his performance was very divisive, because a lot of people felt as though the spectacle he made of the show goes beyond what ice skating should be, and that it's ridiculous to compare what he did to everyone else. 
because everyone else did not have flamethrowers, motorcycles, giant bat wings, and of course pyrotechnic displays, which honestly seems like an oversight on their part. Yeah, right? If it's in the fucking rules, right? Did you not read the assignment? Unfortunately, Bez got hated on online, and the judges at the show seem to agree, because this performance got the worst grade of the week, and Bez was kicked off the show. But who could imagine a better note to go out on? Flying with the wings of a bat on a swing away from an ice skating rink. Pretty baller. I'm sure somehow Meat appreciated this tribute performance. I mean, we sure did, and we wish Bez the absolute best with any of his future meatloaf-themed plans. None of his other plans, though. Just his meatloaf-themed ones. And that includes any dinners he might have that include meatloaf. Yes. <laughs> yeah, or steam. Ugh. But for now, I hear we have some poster news. I can hear the strain in Aaron's jeans as we speak. It's very loud. Yeah, it's like... That's what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. You know the coffin when it opens? Yeah, it's like that. Uh, it's just like that, yeah. That's right. There's a new Rocky poster. This time from Mondo. Mondo is an American company that typically releases limited edition screen printed posters for films, television shows, and comics. This time, they've made something for Rocky Horror Picture Show fans. Yeah, in the past, they've had a few portraits up for sale, including posters of Frank and Columbia, Riff, Magenta. This time, though, they have another poster up featuring a very gray-faced Frank laying back in the mouth of some very glossy lips. Frank is wearing a very glittery corset and garters with ripped stockings. He has an anklet on his left leg, which is stretched up, and large sparkly heels on his feet. The art comes from artist John Cavini, and he's actually made two versions that are in slightly different colors. One has an all-red background with red lips, and the other features a black background with purplish lips and a hazy purple outline surrounding Frank. Unfortunately, it seems, like us, the internet is absolutely crazy for Rocky Horror merch, and both posters have already been sold out. You know, the internet might be crazy for Rocky Horror merch, but I'm not so sure about Rocky Horror fans specifically. I mean, these are great looking posters, but a lot of the comments I saw about them are kind of critical. If you take a closer look on there, you might notice that uh, Frank's garters don't come from his garter belt. They come out of his underwear. Uh, And there's a number of little problems that the community has had with this, mostly stemming from the fact that it kind of doesn't even really look like Tim Curry. But that's not the reason that these sold out so fast. The reason that these sold out so fast is because there's a bunch of assholes out there who love to scalp Mondo merch. Now, this is not just about Mondo products. There's a lot of products out there that are like this, but Mondo in particular does very limited runs of all of their merchandise, including these. There was only, I think, a couple hundred between the two different posters that were made, and they sold out almost instantly. The thing is, not an hour after they sold out, there was over 50 listings on eBay for these things, jacked up twice the price that Mondo had them listed at. So I'm not so sure that the fans rushed over this one as the scalpers rushed over this one. Well, if you manage to get your hands on one of these pieces and you aren't a complete douche, congratulations. You've got some very limited edition Rocky merch, and I'm sure Aaron will want to talk to you about it. Yeah, I couldn't get one. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be on the lookout for any more Rocky-related merch from Mondo, 
or anyone else, and we'll be sure to tell you all about it. But for now, let's head on over to Community News. First up in Community News, we've got an update from our fully nude brethren down in Land Lakes, Florida. Like the butter? Like the butter. In the flesh, Florida's renowned fully nude Rocky Horror cast has recently announced that they're going to be moving. Historically, their show has taken place at Land of Id Nudist Resort, a clothing-optional campground resort with a pool, hot tub clubhouse, performance stage, art studio, on-site galleries, sculpture garden, and a gift shop. A gift shop? Oh, that actually sounds kind of nice. They're also home to the infamous naked alien foam parties that we love chatting about here on the show. That sounds so bomb! Hashtag con goals, am I right? I'll take ways to forfeit your security deposit for 100, Bob. Anyway, it sounds like In the Flesh will be nuding it up at a different location starting soon. Their cast recently announced their next performance with the social media blurb. Join us for our last damn show. In the Flesh is moving. Come party with us one last time at the resort. As far as going out with a bang, it looks like you'd be hard-pressed to top this show. It's a fully nude cast performing at a pool party that promises burlesque, fire spinning, a bonfire, and of course, that infamous naked alien foam pit. The show will be held on March 19th at 10.30pm, and somehow, completely unbeknownst to us, tickets for this amazing event are only 20 Bucks. That's like what I pay to eat at fucking Olive Garden. Imagine Olive Garden being equal to Naked Rocky. That's fucking crazy. The event is also BYOB. And you can even choose to camp on site for an additional fee. So, if you're in the Land Lakes area, definitely do everything you can to catch this show. It sounds like it's going to be the end of an era with this venue. And if you want tickets, you can get them on Eventbrite. We've linked the page for you in our show notes. Although... A cast like this isn't going to have any trouble landing on their feet. I mean, they don't have any clothes to weigh them down. We are excited to see where their next home is and how they end up moving forward. Because we all know, with a cast this awesome, whatever happens next won't be boring. And next up in community news, we want to give a huge shout out to our friends at the Francis Bacon Experiment for hosting their virtual show last Friday. That's right. In case we didn't do a good enough job of promoting the ever-living shit out of it, just yesterday, RHPS Buffalo, together with Sweet Translucent Dreams, put on an absolutely fantastic virtual performance. It was a rebroadcast of a drive-in show that they did together last summer, and it was incredibly fun to watch. Not to get too meaty, but as the best Eddie in the room, I really enjoyed their tribute to Meatloaf. I thought it was really sweet, and I've got to say, I got a little bit choked up when his picture came on screen after all the eddies. Because he's like the OG. I don't know if either of you felt any kind of way about it. I mean, yeah, I got a little choked up too at the end. It was it was a very touching tribute. It was well edited. It was set to Paradise by the Dashboard Lights. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a really good send up to Meatloaf and a, a great showing from all of the uh, eddies in the community who uh, sent in clips and pictures and all kinds of stuff that they were able to put together. Personally, I was super into the Wizard of Oz pre-show. It had big low energy, and you all know how I feel about my magnum opus. 
Does anyone know what music that was from, though? Like, it was a damn bop. I, I had no idea, but I just went and Googled it. It is a uh, song called The Wizard of Oz, A-H-H-H-S. Uh, it's sung by uh, Todrick Hall, and it features the pentatonics. Yeah, as much as I don't like pentatonics, I think I want to add that shit to my Spotify playlist. Well, don't worry. We got some pretty fun little moments during the actual show itself, too. I don't remember if I've spoken about this before, but for me, Dr. Scott absolutely stole the whole entire show for me with the absolute best prop implementation I have ever seen. I think I'm going to have to steal this thing. What they do for Dr. Scott is they have two, like, pool inner tubes. They're the two, they're the ones that have... These nuts? These nuts. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> they're, like, inflatable inner tubes that look like wheels like car wheels or any kind of wheels so they just tie two of them to the sides of dr scott so no matter where they're running around they got their wheels with them it's fucking adorable and like i totally want to steal it for all of our venues where we don't have a real wheelchair what stole the whole show for me was watching the cast have to sprint all over the place to make their cues they were such champs about it that shit is so simultaneously difficult to pull off as a performer and hilarious to watch as an audience member. They were great and total pros. Ah, memories. Does it even count as a drive-in show if you're not hurling yourself on and off stage to try and get your quick changes in? So with NYC RHPS, we performed recently quite regularly at the Skyline Drive-In, which is in Greenpoint. Wonderful location. It is right on the East River, and you have the skyline of New York City right behind it. Just like a venue to die for. But since it is a drive-in, it's pretty damn big, and there's a lot of ground to cover. So the first show that we had there, we actually had the option to change behind a shipping crate that was a couple of yards away. And for all of you who are listening who are part of the Rocky Horror community, you know that a couple yards away to change is just not fucking possible. So we actually had to park one of our castmates' cars next to the projection booth and then kind of block off the other entrances as best as we could so that our people had some level of privacy when it came to changing. But as the show went on and we realized that it, privacy took time, we just started changing in front of them. Fuck it. Who cares? They're going to see our tits anyway. It's not rocky unless you're naked in a parking lot. Correct. Anyway, thank you so much to both FBE and STD for giving us such a wonderful night full of a ton of great entertainment. We had a blast tuning in and we can't wait to see you perform in person really soon. All right. Their shocky performance is coming up soon, isn't it? Yep. It's going to be on Friday, April 1st at the Screening Room Cinema Cafe up in Buffalo, New York. Uh, Meg and I just booked our travel up there last night, and we are both super excited. We've never got to see their cast perform, but we're uh, very sure it's going to be fantastic. They've been working so super hard on this show. Must be nice. Meg literally messaged me today and made sure that I could be daddy on our show last week. And speaking of performing at drive-ins... And cinema cafes. Next up, we've got a write-in from our friend Rowan. Hi, Rowan. Ugh. And Rowan has some thoughts on our conversation last week. Why do I have to be the one to read Rowan's stuff? 
Well, you do it most nights of the week anyway, so. Uh, <laughs> that's true. Uh, God. Rowan is one of my mods on Twitch for nobody who got that joke. They write, I had a fun time listening to your last episode. Thought I'd chime in, being someone who has been a part of a handful of different casts that run very differently. RKO, which is my first and main cast, runs quite oddly. We currently have three home venues that we perform at every month. Two of those three are traditional movie cinemas, and the third is a small black box. Funny enough, our loudest and most interactive audiences tend to always be at the black box. Perhaps it's because it's a little more intimate. Or on the other hand, our cinema crowds tend to remain more or less tame unless it's October. I'm never sure why that is, as we do actively encourage the AP in our hosting intro, though cinema audiences always tend to remain on the quiet side. It's really interesting having to move from venue to venue and adapt to each space, and I think that's one of the best things about this cast. Every performer has just been able to seamlessly understand the blocking and how to adapt to it. Granted, that's how we were taught to perform the show since that's how this cast is more or less always run. Sometimes we perform in places with no stage, sometimes it's on tiny 10-foot stages, other times stages that could fit a Broadway-sized show. Well, thanks for writing in, Rowan. That is some definitely good insight about our topic last week. I, I, I guess that because we here in New York as a cast have always been so rooted in the way that we operate as a single venue show, making the transition has been quite a bit of a challenge for us. I'd definitely be curious to pick your brain sometime about how RKO trains newbies for all of these kinds of shows. I imagine it's a ton of prep. Yeah, we're just starting to bring our first crop of brand new performers in now since the Panda Express and figuring out how to best onboard them. It's definitely been a different experience than we're used to. I would be curious to hear about how all of you prep your new performers to go on stage. Right now, we've kind of been doing a mix of bringing people over to rehearse roles just in our living room and hoping that they pick up enough blocking during our shows every couple of weeks to be able to make it work. But I know it can't be easy for them, especially the ones who are completely new to the material. It would be great to hear what's worked for you out there with your cast. If you found a better way, or if you guys are just doing the same thing, and, you know, we all just have to refine our process. I think learning is the same, you know, wherever you are. Like, there's different things, like, there's tiny things you have to acclimate yourself to from one theater to another, right? Being at uh, the new place we're at on, like, A Street, it's very tiny. And so, like, you lose certain aspects of your performance. You can't be as big and, like rampage on the stage um, which was something i loved about cinepolis but it's like the performance is still the same and you're still doing the same thing so i don't think it's that weird or different per on a personal level i love the uniformity of of having one performing space um, but i also love performing as much as i can so i will take the trade-off of being at five places in one month for more time on stage and speaking of trying to get as much time on stage as possible... You know what time it is. We're... Jacking it. Yep. No Nikki means it's jerking it with Jacob time. This time, all the time. Every week, we're gonna jerk off about whatever I want. It's going to be amazing. I hate to break it to you, buddy, but that's that's not how this is going to work. We, we did an episode with Meg last week, and uh, next week we're going to have someone on from the community who's going to join us. But but I, I have all these thoughts and ideas and topics, but um, but we know you do, buddy. What? Well, fuck you. 
I'm going to give all the listeners out there a taste of what they're missing because of your horrible decision-making skills. Lay it on us. So there's this book. It was written by Scott Miller and published in 2011. It's called Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, and Musicals. That's a bit of a sloppy title. Yeah, just kind of tacking musicals on the end there. You're sloppy. Yeah. The book is a mashup of history, sociology, and psychology. It goes through Grease and Hair and Hedwig and a bunch of other musicals, including, yes, Rocky. And it puts them in context, both with the periods of their release and their actual settings, while doing some humanities-style academic analysis. Like for Grease, they talk about how it was released into an early 70s audience and was a nostalgia trip for the 50s. And they analyze the characters and the story, like the symbolism and sociology and psychology, the, the critical response, all that stuff. Yeah, I've read through the Rocky section of this book before. That chapter is actually one of the more well-cited pieces when you look at some of the more academic works in books like Fan Phenomenon and Reading Rocky Horror, you know, the other kind of academic Rocky Horror books. This is a pretty good section. The history is very high level, so if you've done a lot of research about Rocky, there's not really anything new there, but it also doesn't commit any sins, so that's great. The The analysis does raise some more interesting and unique points, for sure. I fucking hate everything about this. We've done this before, where Jacob's all like, let's talk about some academic article, and then you two literally sit here and jerk each other off for 30 minutes, and somehow it turns out Rocky is actually all about Star Wars or Magic the Gathering or Shakespeare or some other stupid shit. Uh, this essay actually goes through a lot of that. The various classic double feature horror films that were an inspiration for Rocky, like the Hammer Horror Pictures we talked about a few weeks ago. Similarities to classics like Mutiny on the Bounty and even throwbacks to The Tempest. So, yes, Shakespeare. Oh, come on. Don't worry. I don't want to talk about all that. Or really even talk about this essay much at all. I just want to use it to tie to a different topic that I wanted to talk about today. A discussion topic, if you will. Oh, so you did listen to last week's episode. A discussion topic, yes. I have no idea what you're talking about. This is obviously my own unique idea out of my big throbbing brain. So, here's the question. How should Rocky casts treat screen accuracy going forward? I feel like the gold standard has been 100% screen accuracy, and in my opinion... Wow, you really didn't listen to last week's episode. That is literally what we discussed last week. Well, I may not, I may have not. Listened. Seriously, dude, you write this damn show. It's okay. I've got lots of questions. I'm a writer. They don't call me million ideas a minute Jacob for nothing. Okay, how about this then? They don't call you that. You're right, they call me billion ideas a minute, Jacob. Should Cass offer premium tickets or experiences? We're talking ways to get Rocky over that movie theater price tag. You know, in areas that can support it. Would Rocky benefit from specialty tickets that come not only with a Rocky show, but also a unique experience? You're talking about increasing cast income. 
and about how casts can expand into different markets. You talked about this a lot last week. Hell, Rowan just told us more about RKO's experience with it a little bit ago. With the nature of modern Rocky both in movie theaters and other venues, is the experience of Rocky complete? Dude, I can't keep track if you actually listened to last week's episode or not. Yes. Is the siren call of Rocky that it is a great equalizer for cast and audience alike? Or could a Rocky show be more professional or put together or more premium than that? Would the market allow it or is it a cross we must bear? Would it come at the cost of traditional values that draw people to Rocky in the first place? Okay, but hold on. What do you mean by premium Rocky experience? You play the movie, you run around in your underwear, the audience screams and throws things at you, you go home sad and sticky. So I think what most comes to my mind when I think premium Rocky experience is any of the specialty shows we've done where we've had a routine beforehand, a pre-show. Um, just like a few weekends ago, I was at an ordinary kids show and one of their cast members did like a strip dance um, in a full Harley Quinn costume to some song. And that was really cool. And I and we've done specialty things for like Valentine's Day shows. I remember there was one show we had where three of us danced to like um, one of the songs from Five Nights at Freddy's. And I thought that was really cool. And if we did something with like the whole cast, right? Like a tiny little dance mixed with stripping routine. That's like very, very much Rocky, but it's also a step beyond what the typical Rocky experience is. So that's like, that's just a stepping stone. That's just like one idea right on the fringes, but that's somewhere we could start. So you mean like expanding pre-shows into kind of a full-fledged double feature, right? Because I mean, a pre-show is not something that I think is a premium experience, but if you tack two or three or four pre-shows together, right, you've got a whole second show kind of is that what audiences would really crave is that a thing that you could promote as like a double feature with rocky maybe maybe um that's one idea and we can talk about that more another thing i was thinking of to make this a premium experience this isn't uh good enough to just up a ticket price definitely but we have prop bags for people to throw things each item in the prop bag at one point you know, was not something regularly thrown. So we can just make a new thing and be like, this is now part of Rocky, throw it at the stage at a certain time. Specifically, I'm thinking people love Rocky Horror and they love the characters. Why not make items to throw that correlate to particular characters? Why not make a separate prop bag for Janet or Brad or Riff? And people who like those particular characters can get a regular prop bag and this specialty prop bag. And that has like three or four items that you throw at that character at the various times they're on screen. Meg, did you hear that? Jacob is volunteering to make individual prop bags for each character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As I, I, yeah the, the biggest issue, I think that's a great idea. It's my favorite one I've thought of so far. The biggest issue is like, our prop bags now are hard enough to make and they cost money. Um, and that's only after like years of finding the cheapest, most useless thing to put in a bag to sell, right? We have tiny little toast squares that are like 500 to a box 
and we get newspaper free out of the fucking broken stalls uh, all around Manhattan. So I don't know what items, it would be difficult to figure out what items we could get cheaply that would inherently correspond to the Rocky characters. But once we figured that out, once we got past that first hurdle and we were able to cheaply produce a specialty prop bag for the characters, I think that's like an extra, I don't know, 40 plus dollars each show. I, I don't think you necessarily have to go so far as, you know, one for each character kind of thing. I mean, you can kind of crib off the stage show on this one, right? There's plenty of things that they sell that are like disposable items that people love to pick up. Stuff like feather boas. You can pick those up on Amazon for cheap, sell them for five bucks a pop. You can do stuff like, you know, uh, glow-in-the-dark, like, rave-style, like, light-up bracelets and things like that. You know, any kind of this crap that puts people in a party mood, I'm there for that. Actually, I'm hearing from our producer, Meg, that your claim that feather boas are on the cheap on Amazon is wild bullshit. And actually, they cost quite a lot. Um, any comment? Um, well, I would have to say that... Sort by price low to high. <laughs> Those are earrings. Those are feathers. Those are one boa. Why is there a light up boa for twelve dollars? Who wants that? I mean, I mean, you can you can get like six of them for twenty bucks, right? All right, maybe you have to sell these things for ten bucks a pop, but uh, even at five, you're making a profit. I I'm finding I just found six for fourteen dollars. That's pretty good. Sell one for five. That's a great return. Yeah. I mean, it's not necessarily that, right? And this is obviously the difficulty with things like this is there's, you got to make your spreadsheet. You got to dump stuff into it. You got to look at prices. You got to figure this stuff out. But if you're just looking to make more money to create a more premium Rocky experience or to offer those kinds of things for people to buy, I mean, just straight up merch is a great opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Just taking, just finding other things, right? If we can't, it would be very hard to do individual things for characters, but making one extra specialty prop bag, right? The promo prop bag, the creme de la creme prop bag that comes with a boa and stuff is something that I think is manageable and a good way to like test this idea out. I dig it. You throw a reprint poster in there, a, a, a boa yeah. and something else. Yeah. Somebody will pick that up for 20 bucks. Right. Somebody on. named Aaron. Are you kidding me? I don't buy prop bags at shows. I know what's in there. <laughs> I'm here to make fun of your performers, not to engage. What are you talking about? For me, I think the premium Rocky Horror experience is something that is outside of the traditional movie theater in a place like a, like a bar or a club or like a cabaret venue. Okay? So in these venues, I feel like people are more comfortable paying more money because it's a non-theater space first off that's fair um yeah. i also think that venues are going to be a little bit more reasonable with a split because of alcohol and drinks mm, for sure yeah i think that cabarets bars clubs present a more unique show than what people are used to due to blocking improv so like the one that always comes to my mind is the performance that we did recently at the standard hotel we were performing outside there was literally no stage so we had to actually perform interwoven between the tables and while that not might be everybody's cup of tea it allows for so much more audience interaction which is ultimately why i think people come to rocky horror in and of itself i think that something like that is a premium rocky experience that people can't get if they just go see it in a movie theater 
Well, and it certainly changes their expectations too, right? Like at a cabaret theater, you're kind of expecting somebody to come up to you beforehand and like offer you raffle tickets or try and sell you some merch or like just, you know, stand there and have a quick chat with you at your table about the show and all this kind of stuff, which like if you're in a movie theater, a lot of people just kind of plop down and are just like waiting for the the room to go dark and the screen to start flickering. You know, you definitely have a different expectation from the audience in those kind of venues. Yeah, I could see in a specialty like setting, not, not not a movie theater, it's more realistic to have, whatchamacallit, the Trixie lady. A Trixie lady going around with uh, like selling things. I forget that, that item that they wear and they have concessions, but not concessions. They would sell other freaky stuff just going around tables. And I think people would be more open to buying that stuff than they usually are just in a movie theater. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of times movie theaters, because they are so – because, like, that idea obviously came to mind because of old school theaters. But a lot of times I feel like Rocky shows are not in old school theaters anymore. They're in AMCs. They're in Cinepolises. They're in Regals. They're in big commercialized area. And somebody who goes around and actively sells that stuff doesn't fit that vibe. But, like, cabaret clubs, dive bars, clubs, like, they have that, like, rough, gruff, grungy aesthetic to them that that – leads to and it's all about creating that brand it's all about leaning into that aesthetic and that's why as much as there's kind of like i think that i would say the village east has uh mixed opinions amongst the cast some of us love it some of us don't like it all we know is that the aesthetic of the village east leans into rocky and people are more likely to buy into something for an aesthetic rather than for the professionalism of it especially when it comes to amateur theater like rocky Oh, absolutely. And I I think you hit on a really good point there about how creating a premium experience with your show is about making your show unique, right? It's about the venue that you're in that lends itself so well. It's about the the type of performers that you're able to put on stage. It's about the, you know, how you're choosing to interpret the film and how you're choosing to interact with the audience, right? I mean, we talked about this earlier in in the show. The In the Flesh cast, right, that does nude shows at a nude resort, like, that's a completely unique experience to Rocky, and I'd certainly qualify it as a premium experience, even if it doesn't have a premium price tag attached to it. Uh, Places like Chocolate Covered Rocky and Theater Coven, right, they're doing completely different kind of interpretations of Rocky that honestly absolutely qualify as premium experiences. Uh, I mean, we mentioned this before, drive-ins, right? That's a whole different place. There's a whole different kind of aesthetic there. And while I think that you probably aren't going to be able to attach premium price tag to it, it definitely qualifies as something unique. But also, and this is probably one of the better examples for how to just kind of expand your cast's profile uh, or expand like the expectations of your audience is doing non-Rocky content. Things like Repo and Hedwig and Shock Treatment and Reefer Madness, you know, the stuff that JCCP and RKO and a lot of the cast in the community have started adding into their repertoire. Those are the kind of shows where there isn't a Rocky expectation with them, where people are not averse to paying a non-movie theater price tag to see those just because it's a unique experience, you know? But, and you guys are going to love this. It's so big-brained, I'm going to tie all of this back to both my rejected question and that book I was talking about. One of the best ways to make Rocky a different experience, and John mentioned this earlier, is that screen accuracy question I asked. 
We did this at caveat. We still block stuff like the opening of Floor Show or, or Damn It Janet, but it wasn't screen accurate. It was more of an interpretation. It was unique and felt more like a rehearsed show that wasn't just a copy of the film. And with the costuming especially. That was all much more modern. Again, variation. But how far is too far with that? The book talks a lot about the 2000 Broadway revival and why a lot of critics felt that it really didn't feel quite like Rocky. Is that a risk? I mean, I, I think it's certainly a fine line to tread. What you're talking about here is that Rocky is so tied to the time period that it was created. It's that 70s glam and punk rock attitude that's in the face of the 50s kind of American values. You know, it's that whole result from the 60s sexual and social revolutions. Frank is a gender-bent glam rocker. And if in creating your premium experience, you remove that part of the character, it's going to feel incomplete. And I mean... This was the problem with the 2000s revival. Like, when they updated the costumes, they had a lot of leather and a lot of S&M costumes. And that does fly in the face of Rocky, at least as intended by Richard O'Brien. Rocky isn't softcore porn. It's a campy, goofy satire of American sexuality. The 70s looking back at the 50s. And the director of the 2000 revival admitted that the core part of the Rocky experience that juxtaposition between setting and scenario was something he didn't value. In a Time Out New York article, he said, I decided to take the 70s out of it. It's probably one of the reasons why it wasn't so successful. Right. So I guess the question is, can you take the specific period out of the piece and still maintain the balance? Without talking about doing the stage show, right? You'd be expanding the sets and complex lighting and... No, no, we're doing Shadowcast. What we've got to work with is that costume and characterization element. Can you do something like more modern, updated costumes and play your character in a different way that doesn't completely take the 70s out of it? Or, I guess what I think most critics actually meant by that phrase, they felt that it took Richard O'Brien's intent out of it. Because you've got to do something about the actual show. I know Meg thought about this a ton for producing our caveat show. How do you update something like costumes and a character's personality and still keep the role that they fill in the show? She sent out little character bios and costume ideas that are totally in line with exactly what we're talking about. Because otherwise, you're just going to kind of end up doing a theme show. And nothing against theme shows, I love them. I don't. But dressing the characters up as Pokemon isn't what we're talking about for a premium experience. Right. How do you make premium experience characterizations, but make sure that they still keep that sex, drugs, and rock and roll? And musicals. Can't forget the musical. You really can't. It's musical and everything has to be theatrical so let's just run the characters down there's only 10 of them anyway 11 if you count trixie which i would never what are the core parts of the character that you need to preserve if you are creating some kind of premium version we can start with the easy ones trixie i mean i think trixie is the most cut and dry like anything that is burlesque adjacent seems to work 
that could be stripping, that could be burlesque, that could be just anything you would see on like an old tiny burlesque stage. I think the key to whatever it is in order to make it feel premium is having a clear plan of what you're doing and rehearsing the crap out of it. Yeah, whenever I have done Trixie for a themed show, I always themed the Trixie to be that themed show. And I know we're not talking about theme nights, but depending on how much work you put into a theme night, it could be considered a premium show. Oh, exactly. So usually when I do Trixie, I either do my my dad Trixie or I do my Austin Powers Trixie. Uh, aside from that, I've done a few themed ones before. And one of my favorite ones that I did, I did a caroling Trixie for our holiday themed one where myself and two of our castmates had, uh, we, we, were pretend like the Trixie was that we were caroling uh for the first song and we would like go up to audience members and like stick a hat in their face so that they would like pay us money for singing in their faces and stuff. Ooh. And then uh eventually I just got like enraged and I just started naturally what you do when you get really, really mad is you start taking off all your clothes, you know? <laughs> uh and That's then I, I like I frightened the other two carolers away and then I did the remainder of the the Trixie you know, by myself, and it went into a Trixie scenario. Uh, I've done Trixies where I was the co-host for a Halloween show, and I hid underneath a white sheet that had uh, eyes drawn on it, like, you know, like the really shitty ghost costume, and I was actually like an anime waifu underneath it. <laughs> uh, you know, like, I, I've done so many pre, uh, you know, in this discussion, premium Trixies before, and it really is the easiest one to do. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think that... Um... As long as you're doing something that looks planned out, that looks rehearsed and looks well done, you could be doing a full magic show on stage or you could be doing a, a sideshow blockhead routine or you could be just, you know, wearing a horse mask and getting yourself dressed for bed. But it, as long as it looks premium, I, I think you, you can get away with anything. Yeah, it just can't be something that is like thrown together, you know? Mm -hmm. If Trixie is the easiest, who's the next easiest? It's got to be Krim, right? Yeah, Krim is like your wild card. He's disconnected from the events, so you have a lot of leeway with what you do with the character. You just need to portray that expert or master of ceremonies veneer. Yeah, and I, I think you can even expand that to anybody who kind of is not even an authority figure, just like they're leading the audience through the proceedings, right? That's what the stage show has done with it. Like, they use politicians and comedians and actors and as long as they're the one that is kind of there for the breaks in the interlude and they're kind of telling the audience what's happening as long as you're confident in that character you can get away with anything there too i think yeah i think there's something very nice about looking at a fully dressed crim like it's the most aesthetically pleasing character to me but i also think you can do a crim in any sort of outfit so what about rocky the creature. What's his arc and core to him? He's a blonde muscle fuckboy created by Frank. And I think that's why you can just use a blow-up doll as Rocky if you're short-staffed. Like, when I do my fuckboy Rocky, I'm basically a blow-up doll that can talk. I stand very still. I don't usually move unless I am told to or unless I am being drug around stage. Uh, and all I do is flirt with the audience and people on stage. I think Rocky is a really easy character that can break the mold because he doesn't fucking do anything. Even though he is, like, the namesake of the show, technically. 
not even technically. He is the namesake of the show. He has delightfully little impact. He's he's less of a character and more of an item in the show. And that's why I think you can take a lot of premium liberties with him and create something really interesting and really different with Rocky because he does so little for the plot as a character, but is so important as an item. Yeah, I think that that's, um, that's a great point where a lot of portraying Rocky in a quote-unquote premium way, meaning like a non-perfectly screen-accurate way, is about your characterization of the role, right? Like, who do you think Rocky is? Are you going to play him as a fuckboy? Are you going to play him as a ditz? Are you going to play him as, a you know, a big-titted bimbo? Like, you have so many different options, and the way that you choose to interact with the other characters on stage... And the way that you choose to interact with the audience is what's going to make it feel like you are performing that role, right? Because once you're off of screen accuracy, you really have to, like, start thinking about the theatrical part of it, right? And, like, what is your role? Is it to just be that, you know, ditz that's wandering around on stage? Or is there something more there about your performance as Rocky? Yeah, I think the only thing that's really core to Rocky is that he is, like... Uh, visually dazzling he is pleasing to look at and i think you can get away with doing like achieving that through any means it doesn't just have to be that he's incredibly muscular like you, you can just do someone whose costume is like very very intricate and that becomes the like thing of appeal that everyone is like oh my god rocky's so sexy because he looks like a victorian queen or some shit rocky you know? the pruning peacock kind of thing Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like the things about him you highlight or you look at or that Janet lusts after or whatever are just like the various cool things going on in the costume. So I'd argue, is there a way to play Rocky in an unappealing way? Could you do Frankenstein's monster Rocky and still have that feel like premium and not like just a theme show? I don't know. I think that'd be tough because, yeah, you saying that, the first thing that comes to my head is a gimmick, right? Because Mm -hmm. you're you're going 100% against the grain, like almost make like almost making a spoof of typical Rocky. And when you spoof it, you're obviously doing like a gimmick show. Um, I think it depends so, on how how heavy you lean into the gimmick. That would determine whether or not it, it, it would be considered premium. You know, like for example, yeah. I'm not even going to say my fuckboy Rocky because I think that that falls into not necessarily premium because it's literally just a dressed up version. But for example, when Savannah plays Rocky, they play it as what they call Marilyn Monroe, and it is a completely mm. different character. You know, they come out. Yes, of course, the the gold and blonde standard is there. But Savannah dresses in a completely different way. Like they have period appropriate gold lingerie and stuff like that. They have a Marilyn Monroe wig. They do their face like very pale with like the dark eyes and the red luscious lips. And I think that that is a premium version and a premium reanimation of what Rocky as a character can be. Uh, I think think that's a great example yeah but somebody like fuckboy rocky like i'm literally like the only difference is that i have a gold snapback you know that's just a gimmick but i think (laughs) leaning into something that is inspired like that i think that i would consider something like that like a premium rocky right on um so from the least speaking to the shortest what about eddie he's basically just a rocker according to sex drugs rock and roll and musicals tm in the stage show's context, the wider thematic context, 
Eddie and Hot Patootie are all about the lament of the old 50s era type of rock and roll sexuality. The simple jumped in the back seat and really had a good time. James Dean to the new complicated 70s androgynous and ambiguous sexual rock and roll. Well, I don't know about any of that boy stuff, but really, I think that any kind of metal or just rock aesthetic works. I mean, I, I feel like it really helps to have something iconically vintage about it. John mentioned this when we were talking about Rocky, right? Just a, a second ago. You got to keep that temporal juxtaposition. It may not be like 50s vintage, like it was for Rocky set in the 70s. But if you're trying to update the show or do something different, I mean, there's no reason that it can't be 80s vintage in the 2020s. I mean, that's a far bigger time gap. And let me tell you, the difference between Def Leppard singing Pour Some Sugar on Me and their aesthetic and everything that comes out of Cardi B's mouth is leaps and bounds enough for the 80s to resonate as a simpler time. Wet ass pussy. It's okay, Aaron. You can say it. Kindergartners sing it. Kindergartners, you know, really? Yeah. I think something like grungy and angry and punchy is is core to Eddie. And I think if you take that away, like the threat of, oh, this dude's going to punch someone, I think you lose him. But I think you can achieve that through a lot of things. Yeah, definitely. I don't think it's tied to the 50s. I don't even think it's necessarily tied to that biker rock aesthetic, right? That just so happens to kind of be that 50s aesthetic. Yeah. Um, you you see it in theme shows a lot, right? Where the 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 most badass person, you know, or character that you are replicating for a theme show is always placed as Eddie. But I think that in order to create kind of a premium version that is still like contextually correct with the show, I kind of think that there has to be an element of vintage to it. I think you just couldn't dress up as Billie Eilish and get away with calling that your Eddie costume, you know, kind of thing. Now I feel like we are going to be starting to get into the characters that, like, if you try really, really hard, you can, but otherwise it they, they're too iconic, I guess. Yeah, yeah certainly, get... yeah. After, you know, Trixie and Krim, things get a little more concrete in terms of what you have to hold on to to keep the character intact. Who's next? Uh, Dr. Scott? Sure. I've got a lot of opinions about Dr. Scott. But sex, drugs, and rock and roll does not. And musicals. And musicals. In reading Rocky Horror, a different book, whoa, change-a-roo, they talk about how Dr. Scott is a, quote, guardian of morality from the real, everyday world. I suppose that's true. He's Brad and Janet's teacher, he's Eddie's uncle, he's a government scientist that is a threat to Frank, Riff, and Magenta. He's probably a crackpot. And an audio-vibratory-physio-molecular-transport device. Capable of... Someone cut me off. Breaking down yeah. solid matter. Yeah, no. He's, he's totally a crackpot. Absolutely. But I, I think this is actually a good example of kind of the opposite of what we just said about Eddie, whereas, like... Eddie is a very clear characterization. You can play Dr. Scott as anything that kind of still imbues those qualities, right? Like guardian for morality and like someone who would be a teacher or, you know, whatever kind of thing. There's a lot of leeway in there. I mean, we we just did uh, the caveat show where our, our Dr. Scott was played as like a sexy school teacher, Dr. Scott. And you could totally get the like, 
Oh, yeah, no, that's a teacher. Could be Eddie's relative. And, oh, yeah, they're probably dumb enough to have some, like, crazy, you know, QAnon-y kind of science-ish thoughts kind of thing. So I think that one of the reasons why it can be pretty easy for Dr. Scott to have like a premium vibe to him is because he comes in so late in the movie and he has absolutely no bearing on the plot. That's fair. You know, and I think that that's kind of one of the reasons why a lot of people will take creative liberties in doing different things with Scott. Because at that point in the movie, everyone has already been introduced. All the characters are then known. And then Scott just kind of shows up and provides absolutely nothing to the story whatsoever, aside from a little song during dinner. And that's really it. Like... He, he doesn't really provide anything. He's just kind of there. And I feel like that's why a lot of times where uh, you see these themed Scots rather than just like the old guy with the gray, the gray suit and the little maroon colored tie. I, I feel like a lot of times you're going to see a, a vastly different Scots just because he's such a basic character when it comes to the shadow casting portion of the of uh, Rocky He's just kind of there. And I feel like a lot of times when you have the characters that are just kind of there, they're, they're so much easier to spice up. I think Scott is unique because he's so, like, he feels very uninvolved, at least to me. Like, he just stands around and gets moved around a few times. But for most of it, he's sort of like, a little bit like Rocky, I feel like. He's just kind of there. So I don't know how I feel about changing him or not changing him because I feel like he's very much just an item and he has to look a certain way because he's the same all the time and he's not like don't don't mess with it because who cares don't mess with it because who cares man as a as someone who really loves doing dr scott you're completely right uh (laughs) (laughs) nobody nobody really really cares but I, i like john said i think that opens up a lot of opportunities for you i mean let me tell you about the most premium Dr. Scott in the world. And that is Sam's Dr. Scott. Sam's Charlie Chaplin Dr. Scott. For those of you who may not have ever seen it before, over at JCCP, Sam does a wonderful, wonderful version of Dr. Scott that is not Dr. Scott at all. They are just fully doing a Charlie Chaplin impersonation on stage, complete with pratfalls and, you know, that Chaplin walk and, like, the kinds of mannerisms and interactions that Chaplin has. It's like watching Chaplin. There is no Dr. Scott in the show when they are performing. And it still fucking works. And it works completely as a premium experience because the way that they portray Chaplin taking on the role of Scott is what we have talked about as being a disruptor of the action as not really being essential to the piece but as coming in as kind of like a bit of chaos as like the MacGuffin that moves the plot along and it doesn't really matter that the way that they're accomplishing that is by putting everybody off guard and being this really weird character on stage, it's still accomplishing the same thing. And I think that that's a great example of taking a character and completely flipping it, but keeping it as still serving the same purpose that the character has. So our faithful handyman and his domestic sister, what are the core parts of Riff and Magenta's characterization? They aren't as locked in time more in form and function. 
I feel like with Riff and Magenta, the way to, at least for me, I feel like the way to premiumify <laughs> the characters of Riff and Magenta are more in how they act on stage and less how they are perceived. Uh, I feel like a lot of times Riff and Magenta, the people who play Riff and Magenta have that, you know, the same color palettes going on. You know, it's the black and white and then the gold at the end. They have the maid dress, iconic maid dress. They have the iconic butler outfit. And more often than not, you find people who portray these characters wearing, you know, the same thing. They're kind of, I feel like these characters can be kind of difficult to think outside the box for because even if you try to think outside the box of how to like glam up riff it still kind of ends up being the same thing you know like okay we get rid of this thing but instead of wearing the the tail coat it ends up being like a like a long leather jacket okay great but that still has the essence of riff you know what i mean mm -hmm. i feel like the most important thing about riff and magenta to kind of give a premium taste of those characters is how you portray them Absolutely. And I think that this is something you see a lot with stage show interpretations, too, where they want to update the costumes so badly. They want to do something completely different with it. But at the end of the day, the character is a butler and a maid that flip the entire show on their head and are, you know, space aliens at the end. So you really, in order to get that arc in the character, you really have to start out with some kind of subservient kind of position a butler a maid you know something like that that's you know a frank's underling and what better way to do that than to go with the classic kind of look i mean even when the japanese show right the japanese stage show does a completely glam version of everything you still end up with a magenta in like a vinyl maid's dress or you end up with Riff still with his spat and his, you know, his tailcoat on. In the European tour, it's a long gothic coat that that uh, Riff is wearing. And yes, they, they throw on the like the two-toned tinted glasses and the hair is completely different, but you still get that same feeling from the character and it really still plays as that so there's no problem updating it in my opinion you just really have to pay attention to the arc you can't play riff as you know uh a disco ball that's somebody else's role that's what columbia is supposed to be doing exactly <laughs> you know? yeah and you need to it's like i said before it's not in how the character presents it's how the character acts i think the way that i play magenta specifically could be considered premium because i play her as an absolute maniac and a mm -hmm. lot of times when people play magenta they play like this like sexy sultry drunk woman and i play her like fucking rake yawn from jackass yeah i mean that's a great great example of like if you can't completely you know be divorced from the arc of the character you can flip the portrayal of the character you can you know make them crazy make riff depressed make magenta insane you know like all of these different ways that you can do this there's ways to do it high energy ways to do it low energy i think that's where you got to look when you're going premium yep especially for these characters yeah i think they're very restricted um as we've been saying because they're so wild and weird and particular in everything they are to the show. Um, like, particularly when I think of Magenta, she's like... Like, everything about Magenta looks-wise and in the show-wise, it's so 
weird and unique that to change any part of it takes away from like magenta herself and makes it less magenta all right and for that matter columbia is similarly defined by her attitude and her arc she's a disco ball as aaron said of energy is that her core character identity i mean it can't just be that she is basically an emo kid for the entire second half of the show yeah i feel like columbia can be a really difficult character to uh give a premium experience for uh because of how loud she is and how in your face she is for the entire show even when she is a like you said an emo kid for the second half of it i would go as far to say that columbia's costume is the most iconic in the show next to frank's just because of how big it is and it can be really difficult and i feel like a lot of times when you go to see a shadow cast of rocky horror there are some characters that liberties are taken out of like rocky uh like eddie for example i know there's a lot of times that you know people don't wear the correct vest that riff would wear but you can always always almost always bet that your columbia has a gold sequin tailcoat that um that really, really, really rare design on the bo- on the bustier, the ribbon striped shorts. Like I feel like every time I see a Columbia, they are always in the Columbia costume. Yeah, again, just like Riff and Magenta, although I think a little bit more diversifiable. Columbia's got a lot of stuff that's very particular to her, as you said, John. Taking away that golden tailcoat. It's like that that is like the most enigmatic thing. That's the most particular thing about a Columbia. If she's not wearing like a gold sequin tailcoat, is it it's not it's no longer, you know, Rocky. I don't know where you would take from Columbia to change her up. I, I think I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna throw some dissent on this one. Like I, I definitely agree that the aesthetic is important and central to the character, right? Like she doesn't have a lot of lines, she doesn't have a lot really going on with her, so that big boisterous ball of you know everything that she is is kind of what she's got going but i think that you don't necessarily have to prescribe strictly to the exact you know oh it's got to be a gold sequin tailcoat and you know uh, uh, ribbon line shorts now i've seen people take this completely too far right where you line the cast up and i couldn't pick the columbia out of the lineup that's where the problem happens right if if you're trying to do a premium Columbia and they're not a disco ball, if they aren't sparkly, if they aren't, you know, like glam as glam can be, you're you're really not doing the character much justice. Similarly, if you try to play Columbia as like emo the whole show, she has an arc. She goes from, you know, this big crazy ball of energy to this like sad, depressed person after eddie's killed who's just kind of lamenting her situation and yeah she's still you know enjoying herself with magenta and this kind of stuff but she's been toned down right that's part of her character that richard very specifically put into the show so i think that you have to keep that transformation in mind when you're deciding what to do with the character you can't just say i'm gonna do this visual thing and not have any thought to like how that visual thing can be transformed in the second half Um, that's, I think a big part of it, but I think you can get away with, you know, a green sequined tailcoat and, you know, something, as long as it still outshines all the rest of the costumes as being clearly the most sparkly of them all. I, I think you get, I think you get there. 
I would love to see more people take Columbia that direction because I feel like I agree with you. I think that they can. It's just I feel like I don't see it enough. Yeah, exactly. All right. Time for the good ones. Brad and Janet. Let's do Brad first, as I think his journey is probably the less complicated of the two. He goes from the preppy, cookie-cutter, all-American, conservative family values guy. At the start of the movie, he proposes to Janet, claiming his white picket fence and two and a half kids kind of thing. And by the end, he is a totally destroyed shell. He can't go back and undo the sexual experiences he had. His relationship with Janet is going who knows where. And as Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, and Musicals puts it, once in a while is his big reveal number. That he still just wants everything to go back the way it was. That Janet can just apologize and he will still love her. But they can't go back. Brad's role in their relationship has completely changed. Can you communicate that change effectively without using the classic, clean-cut 50s teenager as the basis for his character? This one, I think, is a little uh, a little easier. I think that's a resounding yes. I think you you can communicate that journey without having to dress Brad in 50s attire and have him act like he is in the 50s. It's just easier to communicate that. I think that you can play him as a meathead if you wanted to that is, you know, conservative meathead who just complete, like, the, the arc is still there. Um, I think that you just have to do a lot more characterization work if you're not going to use the kind of classic model for him. Yeah, the big thing with Brad for me is that he's the straight man. You know, he is the he is the the voice of reason that is centered around all of the chaos that's happening. And at the beginning of the movie, it's him and Janet, but the Janet slowly gets swept away into the chaos, and he's still there, t posing confused about what is everything <laughs> about everything that's going on around him mm-hmm. i think that the character can be portrayed because there are so many iconic straight men uh i i, I want to double back by saying i don't mean like straight men because we don't we don't stand the straight men but you know what i mean when i say straight man like mm-hmm. the character that everything happens to you right. know, like in the classic comedian style. Yes, sense. the comedians. Uh, yeah, I don't want everyone to to fucking cancel me for saying there are so <laughs> many great straight men because there aren't. Brad but, like, must be a straight man. You heard it here first. <laughs> but like, Brad is such an iconic straight man. But he could that role could be filled by anybody. I agree too. I think Brad is very variable, um, and you can shoehorn a lot of different people and archetypes and designs into as John said, the straight man, like the, the normal guy, um, where everyone else is very like floofy and has a lot of stuff going on, right? Columbia's got her golden tailcoat and Riff is a butler. Brad is just very basic. He's like mild salsa. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. I think that one of my favorite portrayals of how people can pre like, can give like a premium Brad performance are people who don't look anything like Brad. And I feel mm-hmm. like that there are some characters that that is not inherently true about, but I find Brad always more entertaining when somebody who is femme presenting plays Brad. Oh, sure. Always. Like my partner, Savannah, though non-binary is heavily femme presenting. And when they play Brad, Savannah is my favorite Brad bar none. Uh, I'm not just saying that because they're in the other room. They are, for in my opinion, the silliest, 
dumbest Brad, and I feel like playing up that like childlike naivety that he has throughout the show as a primarily femme presenting person just hits so much funnier than if I were to do it. Oh yeah. I mean, I I've only got to play Brad a couple of times and I, you know, I defaulted straight to the, like the screen accurate. All right. I don't look like him, but I'm going to play him like I'm on screen kind of thing. But I think if I was trying to premiify Brad for like me personally to do, I might fall back to something like a, like a frat boy kind of guy who like is clearly just like the dumb conservative, but like jockey overconfident kind of thing. Cause that's what I think Brad has right at the beginning of the film. He is like this. Oh, does anybody know how to do the Madison kind of guy? you know, right? Like who the fuck are you to be like trying to like normalize this space that you just walked into kind of thing. And I think as long as you give that air off, you're going to be good with whatever you do with, with the character. I think we can all agree that Brad thinks missionary is uh, spicy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <sighs> he won't spank his uh, his wife's ass because he thinks it's abuse. You know, that kind of stuff. You want, you want, right. me, to, you want me to what, honey? But, uh, <laughs> but that, that would hurt. Okay. I, you don't want me to hurt you. Get a grip on yourself, Janet. I, I never. <laughs> uh, all right. And what about Janet, then? Janet undergoes a massive sexual awakening, and more than that, a massive sense of empowerment. It's a very iconic throwback to the social movements of the 60s. Women power, bra burning, rah rah rah, you get the drill. Is it the same as Brad? Is going on is just going on that journey, regardless of anchoring Janet in time, the important part of her character? <laughs> Janet is one of those characters that when we have this kind of conversation, I kind of come up blank with. Right? I'll be honest. I it's, it's it's weird because she doesn't have i don't think that she has she has a more powerful and more prominent character arc in the movie and in the stage show than brad does mm-hmm. oh yeah um it, it's it's kind of like a because with, with when you have brad and janet you have the positive and negative of you know giving yourself over to absolute pleasure brad is the negative janet is the positive absolutely um but and with that idea you would think that she would be able to be played a little bit differently but i feel like janet is one of those characters that like i will get very confused if the person who is playing janet does not uh you know have the the janet costume on you know she's got so many points to hit in the show right she's got to start off as that like ditzy all-american girl the girl next door kind of thing and then she has to like immediately become a scared, you know, uh, uh, frightened of what's going on and then quickly flip into this like fully empowered sexual being, you know, after, after sleeping with Frank and once, once Tatcha starts, like it's a whole character shift, but the entire time you're stuck in the same costume, right? You can't use that to kind of communicate the arc if you're trying to play the character different because you really can't change during any of it. So you're really kind of forced into it, into playing Janet closer to the way that the character's written than I think you are with some of these other people. I think your best bet there is to just kind of modernize her. Let her wear something a little bit nicer. Let her wear something a little more modern. Put her in sexier lingerie if you really want to, because it still works. Uh, I think that's kind of the angle and uh, the way to kind of portray her. Yeah, I feel like now it's more of like it's less about making Janet your own and more of like the yassification of Janet. Yes. The yassification? 
yeah, I don't know what that means. Yeah, What's, what's the yassification? Uh, um, alright. It's like, yassifying is like to beautify something that is, some that is, that would be considered, uh, like heteronormative or like otherwise unappealing. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's all that Janet could take. Or yeah, honestly, to, uh, I, I feel yeah. like if you get anything too far, then it's just a different character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think we all know where that brings us. Last, but certainly not least, Frank. What are the absolute most important parts of Frank's character? Changes costume, changes makeup, but you've got to keep... What? Frank is my least favorite character to be casted as for theme nights. For exactly this reason? For exactly this reason. Mm. I have played Frank the past three or four lingerie nights because every single time I say, you can cast me as whoever. And then every single person on our cast who plays Frank is like, cast me for whoever except Frank. So then Meg's like, well, I guess John's going to play Frank again. It's it's, It's not fun to put together a premium version of Frank. Yeah, I would imagine from like a logistics standpoint it's not fun because frank has so many costume pieces and you'd have to update each one which is just going to be expensive um, as a basic cost but also because he's got so many costume pieces and he's on screen the whole time i feel like he's going to be one of the hardest if impossible to update in any way because every part of him works in conjunction with every other part it's like a giant interlocked web and modifying one part affects all the others. So how can you justifiably change any little bit of him? Um, because it's impossible to like make a uniform change across all these aspects of such a large character. Yeah, I mean, let's take a couple examples of actually people trying to do this, right? Um, the Fox remake, right, with Laverne Cox fantastic frank costumes amazing costumes i i look at that and i go great yes those are all frank costumes i would see frank wearing those things that is the costumes that a sweet transvestite from transsexual transylvania would wear but the characterization missed the mark on that one yep and that's the problem that everybody has with it you can't just update the costumes you also have to take that into account the same reason that when you see like a drag version of Frank, right? I think that plays incredibly well. Um, you can, you know, queenify Frank into this more like drag kind of look instead of this glam rock look. Uh, does it work? Yes. Does it necessarily enhance the character? I don't know. I, I, same thing with like S&M, you know, Frank. Does that enhance the character? Well, no. I think it actually makes Frank more cookie cutter than what Frank is. It, it makes it more identifiable, especially to a modern audience, right? That like, oh, he's just into BDSM. Okay, explained. There's no ambivalence and ambiguity there about the character. I think you really have to keep a lot of that glam look and a lot of that androgyny in it. Agreed. I don't think I've ever been able to see a premium version of Frank that hasn't just kind of like minorly updated a costume piece. You know, like when Savannah plays Frank, Savannah does like a Dita Von Tees Frank where instead of the black, weird, curly hair that Tim Curry dons, uh, Savannah does like a Dita Von Tees hair and usually does like this like really soft goth makeup. But like it still reads as Frank, you know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't call that a premium Frank. It still reads as Frank um adam likes to do this like 
sexy dragged out Frank makeup and like it's still Frank. Uh, I've seen plenty of times where Harley from RKO has used their natural hair but has still worn the Frank costume. So it's like, yeah, you can do – and I feel like that that's kind of the the most premium that Frank can really get is by just, like, doing doing one thing here or there. But, like, it still obviously reads as Frank. And there's I, – I feel like this is the character that there is, like, a full stop on of – you can change one or two things to be able to do that. But if you try to drastically change this, you lose the essence of Frank. I mean, as, as the posters say – He's the hero. Yes, the hero, right? Like, it's the core part of the whole show is Frank fucking with all of these people. And the character only works so much. But I, I, I think, costumes aside, I think there are different ways to play Frank, right? Absolutely. There certainly, certainly are on the stage show where, like, some people play Frank as a very angry kind of, you know, Frank. Some play him as a, you know, a, a more... Uh, force of chaos, light, jovial, you know, fooling around kind of Frank. I think that's where you can, uh, you know, spend the extra DLC dollars on the roll and get the premium version. I think that's something that NYC does really well because I think all of the people that we have who play Frank regularly play him vastly different. And that's what I do really like about our group of Franks personally because I think that all of us have our own little pigeonhole as to what kind of Frank we portray. And we are all very different. And I think that having that with our cast makes it so that everyone, no matter which Frank they get, is going to be excited because of how committed we are to portraying Frank the way that we want to. As long as it obviously fits in the realm of the character, you know? Like, you can't play Frank like you would play Rocky. That doesn't make any sense. There's no possible way for you to be able to spin that appropriately. But, you know, if you are a extremely dominant person and you play Frank very loud and in your face and walking with your penis kind of thing then you play him that way if you play him silly goofy if, like he's in a silly goofy mood you play him like that if you play him like a chaos gremlin you play him like that uh as long as it makes sense for the character and the the actions that he takes that is where your premium frank can come into all i can think like across all the uh, specialty shows i've seen and theme nights and everything the the one memorable frank change that i have in my head is one night uh, we did a switch around night, whatever that's called, where you pull names out of a hat to see cast which in a hat you're... night, yeah. Cast in a hat night. We did cast in a hat night. John was Frank, and John, you pulled Eddie. And as Frank, you did Eddie. And when you came down um, in Eddie's opening and you start the song, you had like all of Frank's costume pieces on. So <laughs> right before the song started, you took off 30 costume pieces. And I laughed my ass off, and I thought that was hilarious. Um, but that's that's Frank doing another role, um, and I definitely think that's the best like Frank change I've seen, which I think speaks to it's really hard or nigh impossible to like yeah. get a really different actual Frank that's still Frank. And I mean, I think we beat this one to death at this point. So how would we call it if you take all this stuff into account? Can more casts create premium Rocky experiences? Is it actually a thing? What's our verdict? So, as we've been talking more about this, like, before we had this conversation, I was thinking it would be rather easy to, like, update or make things make things different for a shadow cast and the characters in a way that you could amp or, you know, up ticket sales. But 
as we talked more and more about the characters, it struck me that like a lot of these characters are very closely tied to principles of their character, like immutable things about them you can't change or you lose everything. Um, which just makes me think that if this is something a cast does, if a cast tries to premiumify their characters, I think it's going to be something we're going to learn more about as we do it more. So while it may not be obvious right now how to do a changed version of Frank or Columbia or Riff or Magenta, I think that'll become more obvious to us as we do that more, as we have more shows where we experiment and poke and prod the characters and see how we can change them and still make it an enjoyable experience. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that it is something that as a larger community we're, we're kind of only toying with in the last few years. I think my big takeaway on this one is that in order to create what would be deemed a fully premium experience, specifically for the actors, you need to have everybody buying into that, right? If you just have Frank doing his own thing and Brad is being portrayed as this other thing, it's not going to create a cohesive, full kind of experience. In order to really make it feel like something completely different, something that people will pay an extra price for or something that they will go out of their way to a different venue to see, you really... If that is what your goal is, is to create a different kind of Rocky experience, you got to have everybody buy in on it because you can't have, you know, uh, jock Brad and, you know, weird leather magenta and then have Dr. Scott roll out in the screen matched costume. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of where a lot of casts may falter because, you know, we are in New York Rocky is a big thing here, clearly. It is the the birthplace of it. Uh, so naturally, it is easier for us to find folks who would want to buy into something like this. Because we're also in one of the most artistic cities in the country, nigh the world. But for the casts that are out in the Midwest, and the casts that are out in like areas that to them are metropolitan, but to us are dinky and small it's probably way more difficult to find people who are going to actively want to buy into that. And even if they have those people, where are they going to do it? There's so much intersectionality between theater and community theater and the types of the demographics of people that you are around the, the geographic location that you're around there. There's so many other nuances to being able to put on a premium Rocky horror experience that while I think places that are on the coasts are going to be way more likely to be able to put something like this together successfully. You find a lot of places either here or or like in the Midwest and the South and abroad that are going to have a way harder time doing that because of the fact that like people just aren't interested in doing that. Rocky just isn't that big of a thing in other parts of the world and other parts of the country. I think that we can flourish and that we can set a really great example on how to do a premium rocky horror experience moving forward but the amount of people and work that people are going to have to put in for this and negative amounts of money that can that can shy a lot of people away yeah i i think for a lot of the the cast out there that might be listening to this and going well it's all great when you got 10 people who are willing to go spend 300 dollars to buy new costumes that's not you know the kind of premium experience we're talking about for those kinds of shows, I think that focusing on the stuff we talked about earlier, things like actual revenue, you know, opportunities for 
expanding your merch selection or, you know, figuring out the price point on your prop bags to really get them right. And that kind of thing is what you're going to be able to do to kind of, you know, bring in the extra dollars that a kind of premium experience would justify. And that could just be, you know, tightening up your hosting routine, making it feel, you know, like they're there for a fully baked show. Make it not feel like, you know, quite such the, you know, the, the, the monkeys running the circus kind of thing or lean completely into that and figure out a way to, you know, turn that into the kind of DLC that you're giving them kind of thing. And that's our show. We want to thank Rowan for writing in Francis Bacon experiment and sweet translucent dreams for putting on a great show and to all of our listeners for sticking with us throughout this two fucking hour long show. And as always, we'd like to thank our editor, Aaron, from Tennessee. We appreciate all your work, especially this week, for editing a two-fucking-hour-long show. If anyone has a question they'd like us to answer on air or some community news they'd like us to talk about or even a cool story to share with the community, we'd love to include it in our show. Just go to our website, rockytalkypodcast.com, and fill out our contact form to tell us about it. If you're enjoying Rocky Talkie, please help us out by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show. It makes the podcast more accessible to new listeners, which really helps us grow the show. And if you want even more Rocky Talkie content, check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok, all at Rocky Talkie Podcast. We'll talk to you next week. Bye! Jesus Christ. Guys, wow. I, I think I didn't hit record. Nah, I'm good. 66. All right, with that, let's get into it. Watching <laughs> That's stars. That's fine. I'll just go fuck myself. You oh, told okay. us. I asked you, and you were like, "I hate myself, and I want to kill and die." And no, I thought that I'll, was I'll the whole thing. To you. As far as going out with a bang, <laughs> it looks like you'd be hard pressed to. God damn it! <laughs> but as the best Eddie in the room. Which I gotta say, I, I must have a lot of fucking balls calling myself the best Eddie when Aaron has like a multi hundred dollar Eddie costume. But uh, moving on, it's not a, it's not about the price. It's about what you do with it. Yeah, and I've got a fucking scooter. So eat shit. As the best Eddie in the room. All right, their shocky performance is coming up soon, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> I answer myself. It's gonna be on Friday, April first. Billy Irish and. Eilish? What, what's the Did you name? just say Billy Irish? I don't know her fucking name. I don't think... Is it Eilish? <laughs> Eilish, yeah. Eilish.